1: just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketship fm twenty four. That's pork porkbun p o r k b u n dot com forward slash rocketship fm twenty four. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. The UN failed to accomplish much of anything. National governments failed to accomplish much of anything. The private sector failed to accomplish much of anything. The scientific community failed to accomplish much of anything. Environmental activists failed to accomplish much of anything. Those failures mean business as usual continues. Business as usual means condemning future generations to hell. Michael, are you are you there? Humanity was burning fossil fuel and releasing greenhouse gas like a hormone-addled teenager. Saka, dude, are you, <laughs> you all right? What's going on, man? Oh, sorry, man. I, I was just catching up on some uh, some reading here.
0: Yeah, I'll say we're supposed to be recording right now. <laughs> yes, I, I was actually reading up on today's episode. Don't tell me you're bringing up some sort of international conspiracy theory or something like that for this episode. What, you think climate change is actually real? Are you serious right (laughs) now or not? I can't even tell. No, no, I'm joking. (laughs) All right, today we're going to dive into a
1: different kind of product. One, that you can't merge a hot fix into production to clean up your mistakes on.
0: Okay, so we must be going old school on this one. That's right, that's right.
1: Today we're going to be talking about Veil, the high-tech thriller climate change novel from our friend of the pod, Elliot Pepper. Welcome to Rocketship.fm.
0: Rocketship FM FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belcito. So Elliot's been on the show many times. In fact, there was an experimental episode you did with him where you recorded interviews with him over the course of several months leading up to one of his book launches.
1: Yeah, no, I, I remember that. That was kind of the precursor to some of these seasons that we've done where we followed you know product people and entrepreneurs for several months and then told their story. Um, there's actually a time when I, I published a, an op-ed in tech.co from the persona of Mara, one of the leading characters in his uncommon stock book series.
0: First of all, I never knew that. And now I have to go back and look at that because, yeah, those are, that's actually one of my favorite uh, book series that's out there. And I, Elliot is awesome. So I, we're getting off track here. I know that, <laughs> but um, Elliot just released his ninth book, Veil, and it's a novel about climate change. But with a tech thriller twist, as Elliot does so well. Here's Elliot from a recent Goodreads book tour video.
2: Veil vale is a science fiction thriller about a near future in which journalists, hackers, spies, billionaires, and diplomats vie over the direction of Earth's climate in the 21st century. It grapples with the power and consequences of, of technology, life in the Anthropocene and what it's what it means to find a sense of agency in a world that's spinning out of control.
1: It's a heavily researched near future science fiction thriller. And this is really Elliot's specialty. And today I wanted to learn more about his process in identifying and bringing a story like this to life. Elliot comes from a technology background and he takes a lot of his process and thinking from that world, which has a really nice overlap between the way that we think about a lot of the product work that we do every day. So let's start at the
2: beginning. So it's actually quite rare that I can point to a specific moment in time when a novel got started, right? Often when I've written novels, uh, it it might be, you know, um, a late night wine-soaked conversation with a friend that somehow sticks in my head for weeks afterwards. It might be an idea for a character or an idea for a particular scene or just a question, that, that, I, that is, like, difficult to answer, that I find compelling, and sort of the novel will grow out from that. However, Veil vale is one of those exceptions. Um, and it's funny that we're recording this on a podcast because a podcast is what inspired Veil. Vale. Um, I was listening to um, the uh, journalist and historian Charles C. Mann. Uh, being interviewed by Tyler Cohen on the conversations with Tyler podcast and he was describing how scientists are uh, researching and have been for a number of years now geoengineering which is uh, can mean many things but basically it is uh, the attempt to modify the earth's climate intentionally so if you imagine that like uh, anthropogenic climate change like you know, us pumping fossil fuels uh, and and pumping CO2 into the atmosphere. That's like an unintentional way of engineering the climate, right? We're changing the climate, but we're not doing it because we wanted to or because we originally knew we were. We were doing it because we wanted to drive cars around. Um, There are uh, now scientists who are trying to think about, well, if climate change, you know, it's getting worse and worse, right? Um, The impact on, on people's lives and on ecosystems. So... Um, Are there ways that we could intentionally try to mitigate the worst impacts of climate change? And um, while there are a bunch of ways of doing this, you can seed the oceans with bacteria, you can do a ton of crazy wild stuff. um, There is one method that is by far the most uh, talked about because it has the most data behind it. And basically um, what you do is you fly, planes into the stratosphere so really high up and you dump uh dust into the stratosphere like literally that's what you do and what that dust does is because it's really high up it actually makes the atmosphere slightly shinier so a a tiny percentage more sunlight gets reflected back into space and less of it gets down into earth and so it directly reduces the earth's temperature and uh, and so people are seriously considering this for uh, you know a way to buy more time to switch our energy system off of fossil fuels and sort of reduce some of the worst impacts of increasing global temperature. Obviously, enormously complicated and problematic, right? Like who gets to decide w- whether we do it or not? Who you know like uh, like how like how do we measure the effects? All of those kinds of things. But the kicker for this is that. Um, It would really only cost about $2 billion a year to do this. And so when you compare that to the cost of like the untold trillions of dollars that it will take to transition our energy system fully off of fossil fuels, um, it becomes even, uh, even more controversial because a single country could unilaterally just do this. Right? Like you don't even need the UN, you don't need a treaty, you could just start flying planes. And even some billionaires could do it by themselves without telling well, telling anybody, right? So I was listening to this podcast and I was like, holy crap, like are you kidding me? Like this is, like this is, like I was like, there are so many uh, problems, you know, interesting questions here, right? About um, how humans are, are interact, with the environment in which we live, how we've become the primary agent of change in, you know, in, in the world in which we live and that how that like, changes what it means to be human. It changes the you know, all of the tools that we have to, to sort of leverage up and down our effect on our, the planet and each other. There are just so many different implications here that I was like, this has to be a novel. I have to write a novel about this. And so that was, that was the seed.
1: So here we
0: have the seed of an idea, but this is still just the start. And like any good product person, you don't just get into building the solution. You research first. So Elliot began
1: learning everything he could about climate change, starting with a book by Charles C. Mann.
0: The
2: first step is that I start exploring. And so that that involves a bunch of different things. So that could be uh, like one thing I did after that podcast is I got Charles's book, which wasn't directly related to this. Um, And I read it and it was fascinating. Right. And then I saw that that book referenced other books. So I read those. And then then if uh, I reached out to some people who were working in the field. So basically I was collecting dots. okay? like that was the thing I was collecting dots. And then the next step was connecting them. Right. So it was like, okay, I have. and, and, And so I would. Uh, take down anything that I thought was interesting. I would, you know, oh wait, you know that's that's a fascinating idea, or that's a a really difficult question that has no easy answers, or oh, what if you had this kind of a character who was grappling with, you know, some kind of conflict internally, or what if we have this kind of a set? What if there was like this scene, like a plot point that was like big and fun and a set piece? All of those kinds of things, and they're pretty unstructured. Then um i try to um throw those balls into the air and then catch them again right so it's a it's a process of saying okay i've all of these things that i find interesting how can i weave them into a story
0: so he's collected these dots
1: and I noticed he said collected, not connected, which is an interesting vocabulary choice here.
0: Right. Because he hasn't started to draw any conclusions just yet. It's a bit like user research where you're just collecting information, but not yet drawing any conclusions or writing any scope docs or anything like that just yet.
1: And then he starts putting together the spine of the story.
2: What are the major turning points in the story? I'm not talking about a chapter outline or like you know, screenwriters do beats, which are like very, way more detailed than a chapter outline. It's like every important thing that happens, like in a scene. Um, um, So for me, the important part is not that, it's to have like the overarching plot points, like the overarching, whether it's like an internal realization that a character makes about their own life, whether it's uh, a, a big chase scene or, you know, just something where the story really changes direction. Um, and you can think about that in a movie, right? Or, or in a, whatever your favorite TV series is, right? You'll have, a, you know, you'll just have these moments when, it's, when everything pivots. And those are the pivots that, that I find really helpful to think through. Um, and um, it also allows me to sort of have, even though it's very rough and general, it, it, it like gives me the whole story in my head. So like, it gives me the shape Of the story in my head and that's going to change as i write it but like having that shape allows you to find really beautiful things like internal symmetry right between elements in the story how um, you'll notice when you read a book or you watch a movie you know maybe there's an item that a character is gifted early in the story that also like plays a significant role later or it might be a theme or a, a line of dialogue those are things that become apparent, like as you're sort of like immersed in it. Um, and so finding that the story shape is step two. And then after that, I then would like start break, like actually starting to write chapter one.
1: Elliot's writing process after a quick word from our sponsors. That's business.att.com.
0: So before the break, we were discussing Elliot Pepper's research process as he approaches a new book. And now it's time for him to start putting words down on paper.
1: Elite is big on the philosophy of making at least a little progress each day. Something I I think that we can all relate to when working on a big project or a side project, something that we, we just need to get done.
0: He tries to keep a fairly set schedule and force himself to sit down every day and write. I'll tell you my ideal day, and then I'll tell you the
2: reality, and then I'll tell you the takeaway. So my ideal day, and this is specific to when I am writing a rough draft, which is sort of when that's when the most sort of like maker time focused work needs to happen, right? So, so my ideal day when I am writing a rough draft is I wake up, I have breakfast, I don't check my phone, so I'm like not on the internet. Um, so I, I have breakfast, I take the dog out, I get back home, and I go straight into the rough draft and write for like three or four hours. And I can't really do more than that, my brain melts. So then, um, then I stop writing and I go on a run. And I get home, I eat lunch, and then I'm on the internet for the first time. Right. So then I check my e- email, I go on Twitter, I do whatever. And basically, for the rest of the afternoon, I'm like doing all of that stuff, like basically communication, which is what most, most, uh, many people's work essentially amounts to, right? Is like different formats of communication. So basically, like the morning is for writing. Um, and focused work and in that morning it's like I am totally okay if I don't produce like if I just sit there and do nothing fine right but like I can't do other things I can't like I'm not checking you know like so I can do nothing and that's okay Um, and like what you really quickly find is that doing nothing sucks so much like I mean it's basically like like I like meditation, but I don't like it that much, right? Like it, like for hours every day. And so, like it's so like like doing like doing nothing at all is actually an amazing creative tool because you're like, hell, I'll do this instead of nothing. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. and so then in the afternoon, I'm doing all of that like uh, interconnected work. So, emailing people doing interviews like this right typically that would be if I'm working on a rough draft that would be in the uh, like in the afternoon um, and then in the evening I'd you know be hanging out with friends and family and uh, and then reading as well so I'd say that's my ideal day
1: and sometimes this actually happens but
2: my much more realistic day is that that doesn't happen for some reason there's a call that I absolutely can't not take that's at 9am or whatever. And so in that case, basically, what I try to do is carve out two to four hours somewhere in the day where I can make that the I'm not on the internet. I am fully immersed.
0: Okay, that sounds a lot more like my days most of the time. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) These days when, you you know, you throw out the to-do list and you just do the best you can. Yeah, but when he was writing Veil, his process was actually a lot different.
2: When I was writing Veil last summer, uh, I was finishing the rough draft. Uh, My wife and I were walking the Camino de Santiago, which is a... Uh, 800 mile pilgrimage route through uh, along the, the mountainous coast of northern Spain. And so we were backpacking. I had a uh, 40 liter backpack, that was it. And we were hiking every day, all day through mountains. And you'd arrive exhausted at a tiny little rural town. And they'd have like a converted gymnasium or something, or some like weird guest house that was volunteer run. Where you could basically sleep on a bunk bed, right? And then like you'd get up the next day and do it. So we did this. took It was five weeks of doing it every single day, and um, and so during that time, the only time I had, I would hike all day, be totally exhausted. We'd get we'd get to wherever we were staying, eat uh, eat a meal, and then I would basically like curl up in like a weird small uncomfortable bunk bed, take out my laptop, and write for. Half an hour for for as long as I could before passing out, um, and uh, and that's how Veil got written. And so what I've learned from that is that that like yeah sure you can have I and some kind of routine for your creative work, but the, but don't let that routine get in the way of the work. The important part is the work, and too it's too easy. For to 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 make the routine your master instead of your servant, and um, and ultimately the only thing that matters is that you're actually doing the work. And so I found that for me personally, the the one thing that I really try to to think about a lot when I'm working through a rough draft is not that I have the perfect day, not even that I have the realistic day, not even that I have the the walking through Spain all you know day, it's that, um, that I do something. Which
1: is very realistic advice at the end of
0: the day for anyone really. Yeah, I could get behind that, just doing something, making a little incremental progress towards a goal.
2: Just like reading a novel, a big part of the experience is immersion. It's that it, you are fully in this imagined world. And so if I take a week off from writing a novel, I'm no longer immersed. So when I go, try to go back and pick it up again, it takes a while for me to get back into the zone of the characters and what they're grappling with and all of that. And so that that wastes time, right? It's like, uh, like I, I, and, and so rather than trying to say, I need to write a certain amount of words or pages or hours per day, the only thing I care about is that I make some progress towards the end, even if it's a single sentence. And if I do that consistently, Like if I'm doing that basically every day, then I never lose my immersion. And that that makes it not only much more productive, uh, but also
1: much more fun. And once he has his first draft, he sends it out to a few trusted colleagues who he knows will give him good advice.
0: He's not looking for people that just tell him it's good. He's looking for critical feedback. He's honed this group over the last decade or more, but they're really critical to his process
1: here. For Vale, they actually pushed him to develop some of their support characters further so that readers had a bit more of an emotional attachment to them.
0: And so their advice and presence in the later chapters of the book were more powerful and better understood. And this led
1: him to go back and add several chapters to the beginning of the book to showcase more of the lead character, Zia Leon's backstory, and better introduce the support characters who were instrumental later in the book.
0: Everyone needs this group, whether it's a manager, a coworker, or in Elliot's case, a group of trusted confidants. Without this insight, Veil vale wouldn't be the book that it eventually would become. And he mentioned another aspect of the editing process, which
1: I could heavily relate to, whether that's writing product scopes or working on a, a creative project. And that's around our own ticks.
2: One funny thing that I didn't really realize until I started writing is that writers have ticks just like we do in speech. So uh, every writer I've ever met will like use certain words or phrases way too much, um, like like in a manuscript. So like it's like awkward, right? And. And so, like, there are things like that where you're like, oh, okay, here's one of the ticks. Like, we're going to strip it out and, like, replace it and things like that.
0: We all have these crutches, and getting ahead of them, diversifying our vocabulary or techniques, it helps make our work better. But this isn't something that we can do on our own. We really do need the outside help.
1: He also has an agent and some consultants who work on very specific aspects like scene continuity and ensuring all the various storylines come together at the end.
0: Yeah, you don't want a Starbucks cup in a Game of Thrones scene type, <laughs> (laughs) controversy (laughs) that's right but
1: ultimately it's elliot who decides when this is all done
0: yeah that and more after a quick word from our sponsors
1: So before the break, we heard about Elliot's writing process, but how does he know when he's
0: done? It's an age-old question, but for an author releasing a physical book, it's essential.
2: I actually decided very early on um, that I, cho- I chose to believe that um, that I think that writing is a craft and that you can only get better at a craft through practicing that craft with intention that uh, it is not something that you can read books about and get good at just by doing that. Like, imagine riding a bicycle. You can't read a book about riding a bicycle and then know how to ride one. You actually have to try and fall and get back up, right? And, um, and so I made that decision really early on. And, and so what that meant for me was that when I wrote a book, I was already trying to learn lessons that I could apply to the next book, that always. So whenever I'm getting feedback on a book, part of my filter is, is this feedback something that I want to apply in this manuscript? Or is it feedback that I want to carry with me um, to my next project? And um as a part of that because i was trying to play the long i've always tried to play the long game with this because i think it's the only game worth playing when you're making art or making anything um if you want to make the world better by making
1: better things right like this is how you you it's you just keep doing it and with this belief that the constant practice will lead to progress and that this work will ultimately be a positive influence in the world he's literally always writing a book
2: yeah i'm always writing a book uh, and that's that's an incredibly empowering decision to make because it means that I'm not trying to make one perfect thing. I'm trying to make the best thing I can make right now. And uh, I, I, it it's transformative. It it uh, changes the way it changes your relationship with your work. And I think that ultimately it changes other people's relationship with your work. Like that is the attitude with which I've been able to write nine novels since 2014. And those novels, like if I'm like, I very much hope and, you know, to the extent that external feedback proves this, it's true. Each novel has been better than the previous one. Right. And like, that wouldn't be the case if I had been working on one novel for a decade, right? That I wouldn't have had any of that 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 full feedback loop of actually putting something out into the world of j- participating in the cultural the larger cultural conversation, um, which then feeds back and informs it. So I, I think that that's something that I've learned via writing fiction that I now try to apply whenever I make anything, right? that. That that's uh, it, it's a it's a it's very liberating. Um, and I think that um, the irony is people, like I feel like there's a like the objection, the obvious objection to that approach is that, well, are you sacrificing quality? right? Like are you are you putting out something when it you could have made it better, right? Like that's the objection. And I actually think that that objection stems from a misunderstanding of the source of quality. That that um, that that the way that this is how you get to quality, right? That that getting to quality is not a matter of just sitting with the same problem for longer. Um, it's a matter of solving problems, so that solving problems becomes a muscle um, that you can then use.
0: So while each book is a mile marker, he treats the full process much like software. He's just made his Git history public for everyone to tune into.
1: And this also takes the pressure off of any given release. Every release is a step in the process towards a greater goal. It's not the end all and be all of his actual worth. Yeah, much like this very podcast. I'd completely agree. And with each release, Elliot's releasing a snapshot in time for the audience to enjoy. But for him, by the time this book is released, he's already deep into his next story.
0: In fact, right now, there's a very good chance that Elliot is actually sitting down in his home in oakland california completely immersed in a new fictional world writing page after page of a new novel building a new chapter in his lifelong journey and we
1: probably should have just ended the episode there but there's also this element of being done where he personally knows when he's kind of at the end of his physical and uh, kind of emotional patience for the process and so i I just wanted to share the reality of of when he knows that he is done with a book
2: I just at a certain point, I emotionally get to a point where I'm like, screw this. It's like, I don't even care if anyone likes it anymore. Um, you know, like, I'm done. And that is actually how it usually works <laughs> for me.
0: Now, that is something I can relate to. Yeah, can't we all?
1: Thanks so much for listening to Rocketship.FM. Rocketship FM now has a premium ad free feed all you have to do is go to glow.fm forward slash rocket ship and subscribe. It helps support the show and it gives you an ad-free experience. You actually get an exclusive feed that you can listen to on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: Yeah, and Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective, which is a community for software product people. Product Collective is also the home of industry, the product conference, industry virtual workshops, and one of the largest Slack groups for product people anywhere. And we're also on the Podglomerate
1: network. So a huge thanks to Podglomerate. You can listen to all the Podglomerate shows at thepodglomerate.com. We'll see you here next week on Rocketship.fm.